0: Thank you for listening to audio content from South Cities Church in Lakeville, Minnesota. For more information or resources, visit us online at southcities.church. Let's pray. So Lord, come now and help us, Lord, in this moment to see the brokenness of sin and to rightly lament, Lord, with great hope. Pray it in Jesus' name, amen. So last week, uh, we saw the reality of Jacob and Laban taking and taking and tricking and tricking that left an estranged family, a forgotten wife, and just a mess of a situation. Yet, we also saw that the backdrop of Genesis 29 was Genesis 28, where God promised that the gate of heaven would be open to Jacob, which meant that God would be with Jacob, and that we saw him continue to work in the mess to keep his promise by seeing that unfavored one and giving her the blessing of bearing the line of promise that would lead all the way to Jesus, Jesus. And we saw that in Jesus, the gate of heaven is still open for us, that we are not defined by the sin that we've committed or by the, the sin that's been committed against us. Rather, we are defined by the blood of Jesus until the day that he brings us all the way home. And the next few chapters, So some people said, wow, chapter 29 was tough. I said, well, wait till chapter 30. <laughs> and the next few chapters just get messier with sin like Genesis is this kind of ugly reality of what life is in a broken world and so we thought it'd be good to split this sermon in the service into two parts one where we just stop and we see sin and its effects at work and lament and the second where we look at how God is always working to rescue his people I've never preached two parts like this before but I hope it will serve our hearts to kind of orient them in these two different ways Today. And the reason we think it's important to stop and lament is that many have forgotten how to lament and instead of lament, just give in to the outrage and cynicism of the day. Like I think lament is this tool in the Christian tool belt and the, the heart of our e- emotions that's meant to serve for our good. So what is lament Lament is really as simple as hope-filled groaning, hope-filled grief. But even though we lament, it still doesn't take away the pain. So lament doesn't pretend sin and brokenness isn't there, it doesn't pretend, it's not fake joy and fake hope, like it sees the sin and the brokenness, but it also doesn't give in to outrage or cynicism because it is filled with hope in the God who keeps his promises. And I think these chapters of the Bible in Genesis help the people of God have hearts tuned to properly lament. So we're going to dive in here and just in this first half of the sermon, see sin at work and lament it together. So step one is to see sin working. We're meant to see it, I think, and feel it and hate it. See it and feel it and hate it. So we have two parts in this chapter. Part one is with sisters and servants. Part two is with sheep. I almost thought about titling the sermon, sisters and servants and sheep. Oh my, I didn't think it quite fit the gravity of the chapter. But right, sin is all over both of these stories. So we see it explicitly in verse one. Just sin is named right away. It says, Rachel envies her sister because Leah has had children and Rachel has not. And we don't read this out of context, right? We remember that this sin in Rachel's heart is downstream from the sin of Laban in his deceit and Jacob in his taking a second sister wife. This sin is the product of other sin. It doesn't excuse the sin in her heart, but it's the, the product of other sin. Sin leads to more sin, which leads to more sin Which is how it always works. Sin is contagious and infectious. And this sin of envy will lead to more sin. Since Genesis 3, human beings have been doing in Genesis what seems good to them. Been happy to listen to voices other than God and gone their own way. In verse 2, we see Jacob is angry towards Rachel it seems that Rachel often brought her frustrations to Jacob and he finally has an outburst right he says who am I am I God (laughs) what can I do for you why are you taking your complaint up with me which is a very interesting response from a guy who has always taken things into his own hands you can imagine Rachel going yeah that's what you always do right don't get holy and righteous now and say let's just trust in God He's never waited for God. And this is not a righteous anger. This is a guy who's in a mess of sin. His frustrated, angry, envious wives who've been used and put in this position He's a manipulative father-in-law boss. And he's stuck in it. And yet he won't admit his part, but is instead quick to blame shift and get angry. And this envy and this anger and this frustration leads to a sequence of ugly events where we start seeing and hearing echoes of Hagar with Sarah. Right Rachel gives her servant Bilhah to Jacob and she bears two sons Dan and Naphtali the second one named to boast in her victory over her sister. <laughs> Like that's what's going on in this family. Like, Imagine those Thanksgiving dinners together. Imagine those Christmas gatherings where the very names of your children are meant to, to laud it over one another. And then Leah, of course, is insecure. Right? She's been forgotten. The only advantage she's ever had on Rachel is she has children. And now that's been taken from her, even if it's just through a servant. So she gives her servant Zilpah To Jacob and Zilpah has Gad and Asher, and she marks these names saying, I've received good fortune, right? A slight jab at her sister saying, I'm I'm still the one with more here. And so envy and outrage and anger and insecurity has spilled over into simply using these servants. We shouldn't miss that in the story, just using these servants to bear children in some sick, and twisted competition between sisters who were in that spot, that horrible spot, by their opportunistic father and their foolish husband. This is like as bad as it gets, right? I mean, this is a web of sin that keeps spinning itself up, and sometimes hurt people like Rachel and Leah. Sometimes people that have been hurt, all they know how to do is to hurt other people. People have been used. All they know how to do is to use others, and that's where they're at now. And it gets so bad that there's this episode in verses 14 to 18. So Reuben, who is Leah's son, has found some mandrakes. What are mandrakes? Why do we care? Mandrakes were superstitiously thought of as the best fertility drug on the market at the time. These would have been the commercials you saw on your TV screens back then for the newest fertility drug. And so Rachel wants them for herself. She wants these precious fertility drugs. And so she's willing to sell her husband for the sake of this magic potion. So Jacob comes in from the field to find out he's been purchased. And then Leah bears a fifth son, Isaacar which ironically means hire or wages. This has now become a business transaction. Intimacy for hire within the family. She has one more and we know it's transactional at this point and names him Zebulun because she thinks, maybe, finally, Jacob will honor me. Maybe, finally, my husband will see me. And then interestingly, she also bears a daughter named Dinah, who gets no explanation about her name, who almost seems removed from the competition, almost as if she's almost forgotten like her mother was by her own mother. Her, her mother's going, you can just be Dinah. Right? No, nothing wrapped up in her because she's not a part of this ugly, sinful game. And then finally, in verses 22 to 24, Rachel has Joseph, perhaps believing it to be a result of her clever scheming with these uh, potions of mandrakes that she's employed. Do you see sin leading to sin, leading to sin in the tangled web it's created? Well, Jacob has a big old family now, right? He's got two wives, he has 11 sons. And he has a daughter. And Jacob is sick of Laban and his scheming. So in verses 25 to 43, we have the story of him seeking to finally get home. Verse 25 says, send me away that I may go to my own home and country. All he wants is his wives and children. He says, just give me them and let me leave. But Laban doesn't want him to leave because he's greedy, and he knows that he's been blessed by God through Jacob, and so he's like, no, 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 right, don't leave, I'll give you whatever I want. His greed leads to manipulation, and he offers him any wages he wants. So at this point, this family, everything in this family is transactional for some gain to the advance of themselves and the pain of others. Everything's transactional. There's no real relationships. There's no uh, worthiness in the image of God. This is just, I want what I want, you want what you want. Who can maneuver better? That's what sin does. It dehumanizes, and it creates dysfunction and distance. So Jacob wants to make sure, as he knows, right? Laban messes with me. He knows that, and so he wants to make sure There's no doubt. So he makes a deal that seems really bad to him at first glance. Like the the business people back in these ancient days would have said, that's a bad deal, Jacob. Don't do that. He asks that he continue to pasture Laban's flock. And all that he asks is that he removes all the abnormally colored sheep and goats. Which would have been... Very few and far between. There would have been far fewer than other types. This was a very meager and humble ask. In fact, a normal deal to shepherd a flock would have been to ask for about 15 to 20% of the flock as your own wages. And you would think maybe, right, Laban would sweeten that deal for his own son-in-law. <laughs> right, but, but, but not here, not in this family. Jacob wants to leave no doubt, so Laban makes the deal, already a deal that is heavily favored towards him, and then quickly, in his manipulative trickery, takes all those miscolored ones, which have already been just a few, and he drives them three days away, so Jacob can't get to them and start with any kind of flock, which means now Jacob is basically working for nothing again. And Laban probably goes, when will this guy learn? Right? It's, it's too easy with him so then in verses 37 to 42 we get the story of peeled poplar sticks and other kinds of sticks and there are a few theories out there about what exactly is going on here but the one that seems most plausible to me is that like the mandrakes this was a superstitious practice And the the idea was that if the flocks, there's this idea of visual internalization. So what they saw when they were breeding is what they would produce. And most people didn't want these mixed colors of breeds, but, but Jacob did. And so if they saw these striped things that he had peeled, the idea is that while they were breeding, they would produce striped offspring. And we'll come back to that later. So when the strong ones were breeding, Jacob would lay the sticks down. So he'd get the strong of the flock. And when the weak were breeding, he wouldn't so that Laban would have the weak, seemingly outsmarting his lying father-in-law again. You can see more dysfunction, more distrust happening as a result of this web of sin. So we have sisters and servants and sheeps. We have mandrakes and poplar sticks. We have it all tainted by sin. And this is all happening downstream from the sinful situation that's already been set up in chapter So let me ask you this. When you hear this and then you look around, can you relate? Can you relate? I I can. Do you see a sin-stained world around us full of envy and anger and outrage and selfishness that uses and discards image bearers for one reason or another? where intimacy has become transactional, where pride runs to the core of every side and every party, where there's dishonesty that's rampant, materialism that promises happiness, greed that flows from that, and then manipulation just get and get and take and take at the cost of other people made in God's image. Does that sound familiar? This is the Genesis 3 world. If you think... Oh man, if you if you're hopeless because you think this is the worst it's ever been, you just got to read Genesis thirty, right? Like this this is how it's always been since Genesis three: a world with godless, heartless people seeking their own gain, and then a world with the people of God in process and still full of our own sin. A world that still objectifies and values based on outward appearances. A world still filled with barrenness. A million other diseases and disasters and death and suffering that steal margin from our our minds and our hearts and our emotions and make us just barely cling to Jesus and feel like how can I make it another day? Do you feel that? Right, do you feel the world is broken? Do you feel that to the core of your bones? So as you look around, at Genesis 3, in our world today, as you look inside at sin that still clings too closely, as you feel the suffering of this life, and as you see it all spin a web of evil and brokenness that makes us feel the weariness at, the t- at times, what do we do? Like, what do you do? <laughs> you stuff it away, <laughs> right? Try to, try to pretend like it's not there. Try to just get up and turn it off, or, or maybe indulge in that habit no one knows about. Whatever it is, to kind of medicate the pain. What could we do? I think we're supposed to lament, <laughs> like give ourselves to the grief, <laughs> like lean into how sad it is and sorrowful it is. It's right to lament. We groan for the sin and brokenness around us. We confess our own sin. The psalmist says, right, his bones were were aching and he he couldn't get out of the the cover of darkness until he confessed his sin, (laughs) right? You you look through the book of Ecclesiastes and you see this this groaning for the, the way things are supposed to be. So what do we do? We lament. We come to Jesus and tell him we need him, that we want to walk with him, that we long to come and see him make things different now by his spirit in us and in the world around us and we we long for the day when he'll come and make all things new. We come to Jesus and tell him we still trust him because his body was broken for us. His blood was spilled for us and we know He'll finish the work he started. We come to Jesus and tell him we want to follow him. We want to be forgiving. We want to be loving. We want to bear the fruit of the Spirit until he comes again. We lament, but we don't give in to the outrage and the cynicism and the anger right? and the the guilting of ourselves and others. We don't give in to, to guilt. We don't believe God is done with us. Instead, we plead for humility and kindness and patience. That flows from knowing we are identified and covered and secure in the blood of Jesus that watches us as white as snow. And so we're just going to take a few moments now and lament. <laughs> so that's what I want us to do as we, as we come to the table. If you're not able to come to the table right now, you can just get your hands in the air. And we're going to bring the elements to you. But what I'd love you to do right now is just take a few moments to just lament. What does lament mean? Remember, groaning with hope, (laughs) grieving with hope. Take a few moments to lament. If you're here today and you're not yet trusting in Jesus, then I know you don't feel this hopefulness. You just feel the grief, and we want you to trust in Jesus. But if you're here and you're not trusting in Jesus, just let these things pass by. Don't come up and take them, but talk to someone around you if you want to get in on this hope, this eternal hope. If you're here and you're trusting in Jesus but you know those sins in your own heart, you're not willing to lay them down yet, just not ready, don't come. We don't want you to eat and drink judgment on yourself, but please talk to someone, come into life, come into light, come into hope. And if you're here and there's, there's brokenness in this body, there's bitterness and anger and frustration you have towards others that you're not yet willing to lay down, oh, right in this moment, I pray you'd see them as made in the image of God. <laughs> you'd see them as your brothers and sisters and you wanna to move towards them in forgiveness And mercy and love. But if you're not there yet, just let these pass by and get help to make those things right. So why don't you bow your heads. And I'm going to read the words of institution. Then we're going to take communion together. So the Lord Jesus, on the night He's betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And then in the same way, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. So let's grieve with hope right now and come to Jesus and ask him to to change things in us and change things in this world and then we'll come back and be ready to rejoice when we're done with that. So Lord, we've seen the sin. We want to lament over the sin. Lord, now help us see your work so that we might end Rejoicing, we prayed in the name of Jesus. Amen. So we saw the sin, we've lamented, and now what I want us to see is the heart of God and his work for his people. And then our last three things, we're just going to get after it and rejoice, all right? That's what we're going to do, because <laughs> there's going to be a lot to rejoice over. So, first, let's see God is working. So first of all, I just want you to see, and I just I just saw this last night as I was finishing up preparation. I want you to see it with me. I want you to see the heart of God towards His image bearers. So here we have all these people, right? All these names, and you could read over them pretty quickly. We have sons and a daughter born through servants, and in this economy, these servants are nothing. In this economy, they're all pawns and products in like this ugly mess. But notice the Bible says every one of their names. It records them in the word of God. So I was thinking, why? Why not just say her servant, her servant? And it's because it's telling the same story. It's told from Genesis 1. It's because their people... Made in the image of God, worthy of dignity, respect, value, and worthy for us to know their names. For us to, to see them as real people in the story. So people caught up today in the, the modern day sex trade. The, the women on those screens right, being used and abused for for pleasure, right, The, the refugees and victims of wars, those struggling in an abusive marriage, every baby in every room and every one of his precious saints that passes into glory, from beginning to end, God knows their names. Isn't that amazing? That God sees and knows their names. Every person in this room right now that feels forgotten and like collateral damage God knows your name. Every person who's been sinned against, God knows your name. Every person caught up in sin right now, God knows your name. Made in his image, worthy of dignity and value, this is the heart of God. And we said last week that God who is with us is with us in the mess that humans make to work to bring his people to his place To enjoy his presence. So how is God working towards his image bearers here? Well, first, notice that despite horrible motives and horrible methods, God is working to keep his promise to make the lineage of Abraham, Isaac, and now Jacob, a great people. A great people. We've seen this bareness And one or two, barrenness, or one and two. Now here, God is working to make them a great people. There are now 11 sons and a daughter. God is working in these people. They have names, they're recorded, and they will be the people of God. But also, what I want to point out here, maybe more than anything, is remembering those two stories of superstition I mentioned, right? So we had the new fertility drug on the market with the mandrakes of Rachel. And we have the, the strange striped sticks with the sheep of Jacob. Perhaps Rachel thinks, look what I've done. I've, I've done this in my own strength. Perhaps Jacob thinks, look it, I was able to kind of help God along in his providence again. But what I want us to see in this mess is that the word of God goes above and beyond to make it very clear that God was the decisive factor in both. So listen first to verse twenty. You can look at it with me. It says, Then God remembered Rachel, and God listened to her, and God opened her womb. So was it the mandrakes, the mighty new fertility drug of the earth? No. It was the maker of heaven and earth. And God did this in his mercy, right? God in his mercy and in the life of Rachel who has been hurt and is now hurting and using others, he remembers her. He listens to her. He moves towards her in kindness. So this morning, if you've been hurt, or if you've hurt others, perhaps you find yourself asking, how long, O Lord, will you forget me? Will you forget where I'm at? In Jesus, covered by his blood, the gate of heaven is open to you. He remembers you, he hears you, and he will move towards you in kindness if you simply trust him and ask. Isn't that amazing? God's working in this mess. And this son, this Joseph, born almost last to a mom that had been up to no good using her servants just as she had been used earlier, is the son that will eventually save Israel from famine, lead to God's promise happening as the people of God multiply so that they can go back to God's place and be in his presence. It's the same son that says to his brother, Well, you meant for evil, right? Genesis 50, 20, God, he meant it for good. Right? That is the story of his whole life from birth to death what you meant for evil God meant for good God can use the most broken situations for his purposes to form his people and form their hearts to trust him in every circumstance every circumstance and use them for his redemptive purposes superstition no <laughs> the sovereign savior working for the good of his people so you don't have to pray those prayers <laughs> Like, God, like, make deals with God. Like, I just won't do it again. If I, if I don't do that again, maybe if I don't do that again, like these superstitious kind of prayers that act like you're going to make a deal with God. You can just know I'm just going to confess my sins, and he's faithful and just to forgive me and work for my good. Isn't that a relief? You don't have to bargain with God, make deals with God. Just trust God. What about these striped sticks and sheep? Were those, striped sticks and sheeps, the reason that it all worked out for Jacob? Well, listen to chapter 31, verses 10 to 12. This is Jacob talking, and he says, In the breeding season of the flock, I lift up my eyes, and I saw in a dream that the goats that mated with the flock were striped and spotted and mottled. Then the angel of God said to me in the dream, Jacob, and I said, Here I am. And he said, Lift up your eyes and see all the goats that mated with the flock are striped and spotted and modeled, for I've seen all that Laban is doing to you. So was it the superstition of a cunning shepherd that won the day? No. It was the sovereignty of the chief shepherd that won the day. How did Jacob come up with this plan? Right. If you're reading the story in chapter 30, you're going, why would he say that? Why would he make that deal? How did Jacob even know to do that? Right? Maybe you'd be tempted to think, oh, he has this stick trick in the back of his mind. But the reason Jacob came up with this plan is because God came to him and told him. He said, here's what's going to happen. Of course, Jacob's heart was still in process, so he thought as usual, he'd give God a little help. But even he realized it wasn't the sticks. It was a Savior. Listen to chapter 31, verses 7 and 9. Here's what he says. God did not permit Laban to harm me. If Laban said, the spotted shall be your wages, then all the flock bore spotted. And if he said, the striped shall be your wages, then all the flock bore striped. Thus, God has taken away the livestock of your father and given them to me. God promised to bless Jacob. God told Jacob, here's how I'm going to do it. And then God did it. He's working to bless and keep his promises to Jacob he made back in chapter 28 so at the end of this chapter, look at verse 43. Here's what it says about Jacob. Thus the man increased greatly and had large flocks and female servants and male servants and camels and donkeys, which was exactly what was promised back in chapter 28. Is this because Jacob deserved it? Is he was just awesome, always doing the right thing, always trusting God because he was perfect in the process? No. We keep saying this. It's because God keeps his promises to his people. He's a covenant keeper and he's working to bring his people home. God's heart is for his image bearers. There's not one he doesn't see and know. God is working in the mess. God will triumph in the life of every believer and in the story of history over the work of sin. And so what do we do? We rejoice in his rescue. What I want to point out here is just a pattern as we get ready to rejoice that the biblical writers want you to see. Remember, the Bible is written by who? God. And a bunch of other people, right? God and others. You, got, you know, the Bible is written by who? Confidence. Who is the Bible written by? God, right? right. So this is one story, and the author is getting us ready to hear echoes of this story throughout the Bible. So notice this pattern with me. Notice Jacob is in exile away from God's place and longing to be home. Right? He, he's oppressed and he's stuck, and he's suffering from his own sin and the sin of others. But God's with him in the exile and working to bless him and bring him all the way home. Well, eventually, Joseph, who's in this story, saves God's people, who are now named Israel because Jacob has a new name. More to come on that in a few chapters. He saves them from famine so that they'll come to Egypt and survive, but then in Egypt, where are they? They're in exile, right? Away from God's place and longing to be home. They're oppressed. They're stuck. They're suffering from their own sin and from the sin of others. But God's with them in their exile, and he's working to bless them and bring them home. Right? The, the people of Israel are later exiled to Babylon, where we get the story of Daniel and his friends. Exiled, stuck, longing for home. God's with them in the mess. He protects them. He carries them, works to bless them and bring them home. We follow that line all the way to who? Jesus. Jesus came to earth to enter our mess, far away from home for him. He endured the temptation that Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Israel and David and the disciples and we never could and he never sinned. He was exiled and far from home. He suffered only from other sin, not his own. Yet for the joy set before him, he lived the life we couldn't live. He endured the cross, dying a death we deserve to die. And he rose us again to bring us to God. Do you see the pattern? Right? Exiled, oppressed. Broken, far from home, longing to be in God's place, to enjoy his presence, and God with his people saying, I'm going to bring you home, I'm going to be with you, we're going to make, and so now we are what? In Christ, right? That's why we say we're a family in Christ, because being in Christ, covered by his righteousness, in union with him, gets us all of these things, (laughs) Right, Being in Christ is what's going to get us home. Being in Christ is what makes all the promises of God find their yes in him for us. So if you're trusting in Jesus, this is all true for you. Here we are, broken, in the mess, suffering from our own sin and the sin of others, in exile, far away from home. If this place feels like home to you, you're not walking very close with Jesus. Right? It should feel like we need to be home. And in Christ, he sees you. He sees you in Christ. He he knows you. If you would trust Jesus now, if you're not trusting him, he'd be with you and for you in your mess, in the mess of this world. We are sojourners and strangers far from home. But God is with us here and working for us because Jesus promises to keep us and bring us all the way home. And he does, right? I've seen it in the last week. He brings his people all the way home through the suffering, through sickness, through death, all the way home, (laughs) Because he rose again to conquer death, because he came into our mess to be Emmanuel, God with us, to live the life we couldn't live and die the death we deserve to die and raise again to conquer death and send his spirit to sustain us until the day that we die. But we don't really die, we're raised up to be with him forever in his presence where there's fullness of joy and at his right hand where there's pleasures forevermore. (laughs) That's the story, right? That's what we rejoice in. Because yes, we're in the wilderness wanderings. Yes, we're in exile, but no, this isn't where it ends. Do you believe this isn't where it ends? Do you live like this isn't where it ends? Do you rejoice like this isn't where it ends? Do you trust him that this isn't where it ends? It's all that matters in the end. And so we wait, we wait with great patience. We rejoice in his love towards us. We plead for mercy to wait with hope and humility and kindness and patience and endurance and grace instead of giving into the culture of outrage and anger and frustration and cynicism and vengeance. I want, <laughs> I said this and I know he'd be okay with me saying it. I want when the rest of me is fading away. I want to be like Craig's sign and have all I can think of be my joy in Jesus. That's what I want. And why was that all that was left? Because he so leaned into these promises. He so trusted Jesus. He so leaned into the joy set before him like Jesus leaned into the joy set before him. God keeps his promises to his people. God is with us in the mess. Jesus came that we might be forgiven. Jesus gave us his spirit that we might be sustained until we get home. And Jesus will return to make all things new. He's going to put an end to sin. He's going to vanquish every disease. He's going to have victory over even the idea of death. And he's going to wipe away every tear from our eyes. Everyone, we will be with him and he will be with us now because of Jesus to make sure that we make it all the way home from exile. So let me pray and then we're going to sing our guts out. Lord, help us now rejoice. You're Emmanuel, you're God with us, King Jesus the one with us in the mess. You've given us your spirit to make his home in us until we come home to be with you. So Lord, help us rejoice. Lord, There's brokenness in this room. There's sadness in this room. Lord, rejoicing is part of lament. So Lord, right now we're not pretending like there's nothing hard or there's nothing wrong. We're not pretending like there's not sin and brokenness. We're rejoicing that there's one who's paid for sin. We're rejoicing that there's one who's going to come back and make all things new and swallow up death and sin and suffering and victory and wipe away every tear from our eyes. So Lord, come now and help your people rejoice with great rejoicing that Jesus is real and alive and working and singing over us with loud singing now as we sing to him. We pray it all in his name. Amen.